problems. But we are starting off the show today talking about what we have been seeing in both the United States and here in Canada, in Vancouver, reaction to the killing of George Floyd and protests. We've seen marches and unfortunately, in some cases, uh, we've seen violence erupt both in the United States and in Canada. So joining me right now to talk a bit more about this is Angela Marie McDougall. She is the executive director of Battered Women's Support Services, and we're often talking about that. In fact, we've talked to Angela about that during the pandemic as well. Uh, But we're going to talk a bit more about what's happening right now in this current situation. And Angela has agreed to join that conversation with us. Angela, thanks so much for being on the line. Thank you, Jill, for the opportunity to speak to this today. Um, I know you've been following it on social media, sharing mm-hmm. some other posts and uh, as well. So, f- starting with what's happening in the United States and the mm-hmm. reaction to the killing of George Floyd, what is, what is your take on that? Well, we've had a decade of watching black people die in the U.S. Uh, at the hands of, of police services. And from you know going back to Trayvon Martin all the way up to present day, with Floyd George, and we, uh, you know, we've got a, a new scenario. I would say, in part, because uh, if it wasn't uh, for video evidence uh, and hashtags, we, uh, a lot of what we know has been a historic reality in the U.S. around uh, police violence and killings of Black people. We wouldn't have uh, the, uh, we wouldn't know uh, about what's about what's going on. So, all you know, going back to. Trayvon Martin, uh, and you know, right up to present day, uh, we've seen uh, so many black uh, men and women and trans people killed uh, by police uh, over the last, uh, you know, ten years. And this this case in itself, unfortunately, like you, you're saying, this isn't a one-off. This is something that we've seen happen before. Why do you think it's this particular case that has sparked such protest and such reaction? Mm-hmm. Well, we uh, well we know that there was a lot of protests, certainly uh, in Ferguson uh, when uh, in Ferguson uh, and when uh, you know Tamara Rice was killed and and when Eric Garner was killed in New York, and so we've seen this uh, we've seen um, a reaction certainly uh, and it's been building. Now I would say that uh, in general people are tired. Black people are tired of police violence. Uh, tired. Uh, and also recognizing that there is some, you know, and also not seeing that there's justice within police services, that uh, police have been uh, been able to do this kind of violence with impunity. And then there's a real tiredness of that. And I think so with social media and the fact that everybody has you know, been in a pandemic. So there's we have uh, perhaps um, uh, we're, uh, we're at home, many of us and are watching the news and watching social media. And so. Uh, people have been able to get out on the streets, uh, I would say, in a different kind of way this time. It's been the accumulation of a decade of killing, police killings of black people, combined with uh, being under a pandemic and the um, having some time to maybe organize and get out on the streets. And also, you know, that uh, in the U.S. and, and certainly in some, in some ways in, in Canada, we are able to ma- mask our faces which is uh, also helps. I think it gives people um, a sense of being able to have some anonymity and being able to be present on the front line of the violence right now, which, it, you know, because there's a lot of fear of retaliation for organizing about police violence. Uh, there's, uh, so I think that that's a factor uh, in why we've seen the big crowds combined with people being just fed up and needing change. And it's remarkable. Uh, I don't think we've ever seen a circumstance that we saw in 
Minnesota, where we saw police forces leaving leaving their detachment. Uh, and uh, it's a, there's a real reckoning, I would say, that's happening uh, within the culture right now where uh, people are tired. There's a, uh, you know, there's no desire to go back to normal. The pandemic has created an opportunity for us to really reflect on, on what it means to go back to normal. And there is, you know, we're shaping a new path. And I think accountability, uh, police accountability, uh, the, you know, the structures of power and, and historic and present day uh, virulent racism, which is uh, at the heart of all of this. Do you think there's a chance of of the message being being derailed a bit, or or the, or, it, or the focus shifting in that it started with a, a direct response to the killing of this man, to people watching this video of a police officer putting his knee on this man's neck, holding it there for nine minutes, and and effectively killing him. And yes, he was charged with murder, uh, but many saying that that's not enough. We're now seeing these protests and people taking to the streets, and in some cases being overtaken by others who are are breaking into stores, breaking windows and trashing stores. I, I mean, I guess, how how does a, a white person trashing a Starbucks help this at all? Well, I can't speak to that particular scenario that you're referring to, but I do know that, uh, you know, Martin Luther King said it quite well, and many have said it since, that uh, writing is a language of the unheard. And uh, black people, particularly in the U.S. and also here in Canada, have been seeking to redress and address historic racism and police brutality that has been so systemic and institutionalized uh, and has only come to light because of social media and video, you know, videoing videos and and making those videos public. So, uh, you know, that the, the there's only people are wanting the system to change and. Uh, watching a decade of police being killed uh, by uh, being, black people being killed by police a decade, uh, I you know there's there's a, a real sense of needing things to be different. And unfortunately, all of the protests up to this point that were deemed to be nonviolent, uh, you know, kneeling, uh, going to court, have have been have not been effective in making that change. And we have seen over the millennia when humans want things to be radically different, there is a, a very strong response that, that ends up being the change maker. And, and often that is uh, civil uh, unrest in the way that we're seeing in the United States. Uh, and uh, so, you know, more than taking the streets, but, you know, creating a, a, lot, of, of a lot of attention and a real sense. And I've, and I've been heartened in a sense when I see some of the elected officials in the U.S. recognizing that uh, time is well overdue for the system to change, that there, is been a, there has been a, a level of, of impunity and no accountability. And that's at the heart of this. And I get that we focus on the, um, you know, the actions of the individuals, and we should never lose sight of what, what is at the heart of this. And that is uh, an incredibly historic and current virulent racism that is grinding down with police killing black people uh, in the U.S. and in Canada, as well as in, in Indigenous people. And these are, that's real. And, and that's what people need and want changed. 
Continuing now with my guest, Angela Marie McDougall. And Angela, before the break, we were talking uh, more about what's happening in the United States uh, with the yeah. reaction to uh, the death, the, the killing of uh, George Floyd. In Canada, do you think, even though we have seen protests, we've seen people come out and rally, uh, people are also talking about the death in Toronto of Regis korshinsky Paquette. Do we have a false sense in Canada that racism isn't a problem here or that, that, that we've already addressed it, we're better than that? Yeah, so we Canada Canadians, and I, you know, I my hometown is Vancouver. Uh, I'm here, you know, as a second generation immigrant uh, living here. And uh, Canadians, we define ourselves in opposition to the United States, particularly when it comes to policing and white supremacist violence. Uh, so with, it is really important right now to dispel the myth that racist policing is something that happens, you know, over there in the U.S., and and it it is uh, you know as Africans we come we all come from Africa at some point African Canadians have always been in a relationship of social sub um, subjugation uh, when leading with the Canadian state uh, so it is um, in so many ways irrelevant you know uh, whether it's the government or the judicial system or you know education or social welfare systems or any other uh, state controlled or state influenced institution we are. Uh, in a in a social in our social location is, is under and subjugated and so these are realities and in, and our immigration practices in Canada in large part were to keep black people out of Canada. Uh, there's a beautiful book that was written by uh, Ro- uh, Robin Maynard. It's called Policing Black Lives, and she talks about how can- the making of Canada as a nation included immigration uh, practices that barred immigrants to Canada from races that were deemed undesirable and that black people were identified as undesirable. And so very few black people were able to come into Canada as immigrants for a long time. And it wasn't until 1955 when the West Indian domestic scheme permitted black women to come and work as domestic labor. Uh, Vancouver has a storied history of displacing a black community, Hogan's Alley. Uh, so Canada is, has a unique relationship to black people, and, uh, and it's, it's certainly uh, shown in the ways in our, the numbers of us that are killed by police. I mean, our numbers are relatively small in terms of population, but, many, but the numbers of you know, suspicious deaths and, and outright killings um, while in police custody of black people and indigenous people uh, is certainly a hallmark within Canada, and it is a good time for us. While we're certainly watching the U.S. grapple, this is a perfect time for us to grapple with our own historical uh, and institutional uh, inequalities, inequities, uh, and how that grinds down in police killings uh, and for Black and Indigenous people in Canada. And when we talk about that relationship between people and between the police. And we've seen in in many of the rallies in the United States, uh, the videos surfacing of police officers in various towns and various cities uh, joining, joining, whether it's kneeling, joining with the people marching, saying, yes, we walk with you. And that, how do you, how do you kind of look at that and think, okay, that seems like that's a good thing. We're talking about police forces joining with, joining forces with, with those who are out protesting and demanding change. I, I mean, is that how we get to a, a point of change, or, or how do we do that? <laughs> Jill, that's uh, such a thing to contemplate. And, uh, you know, uh, the individual actions of police officers matter, for sure. And so, uh, 
you know, their individual action is, is very important. Uh, and so, you know, recognizing that there's a problem and standing beside and walking is uh, in and of itself not uh, harmful. What is a bit more of a struggle is getting at the roots of the problem within policing itself. If we look at the makings of police uh, in the U.S., they, you know, police were created for very specific reasons about protecting property and, and you know, and, and quite frankly, being slave patrols, you know, for runaway enslaved Africans uh, in order to catch them, as well as moving Indigenous people off the land. So there's the very beginning of policing has has not been a good thing for Black people and Indigenous people on both sides of the border. And that's at the heart of this. We are still dealing with the roots of the problem and we haven't been able to really examine those roots in order to address those roots and and uh so it could be a pr uh exercise you know for us to see you know police uh kneeling or walking uh, and that's uh that's maybe not be a pro- not a problem the biggest thing that we have right now is an opportunity to look at the roots and to, uh, you know, to address those roots that, that are toxic and to build a more equitable society and also accountability with uh, those that are, have the job of uh, enforcing laws. Uh, that was something that came up earlier. Uh, Barack Obama sent a message out talking about voting because there's been a lot of talk of getting out and voting if you don't like what's happening. But he brought up the point, and it's different, I think, in the States, but but similar in, in some ways, and that he was talking about police chiefs are appointed and such at the lower levels, and you need to vote in your community to really make a difference. And, and I think a lot of people would equate that to watching, again, that video of George Floyd and the other officers who did nothing. Is, mm-hmm. it, do, is it not at that level then that when there's always always going to be, not to oversimplify, but there's always going to be a bad apple. It's how we deal with that bad apple moving forward is how we get rid of it. You know, there are some jobs, and I'm quoting a comedian, actually, Chris Rock, a comedian. There are some jobs where you just cannot have bad apples. And policing is one of those. Uh, you know, you can't have bad apples that are, let's say, pilots. You know, you know this pilot, he's a great pilot, but he just, you know, he doesn't like to land the plane. This is a, you know, a quote. We, you know, police can't have bad apples because they have guns and they are, uh, they're, you know, they're there for the public safety. And so this is uh, something that we really got, have to move off our, um, I think, our, our, our thinking that, you know, there's just these few individual bad apples that, and, that, and that's somehow acceptable. There, you know, we really need to understand that, that some jobs cannot have bad apples and policing is one of those cannot happen. So for me, it's more of an institutional and more of a, a systemic problem. And that's the culture of policing that is more the problem. And these, you know, individuals that come to the, you know, kind of we then get to see because somebody videotaped them killing a black person, uh, you know, for all those others that we don't see on film, which are cert- certainly exist, without a doubt. And uh, it's uh, it's something that is we absolutely have to understand that this is uh, way more than an individual. Uh, there's a reason why the individual cops are not calling out the bad apples as well, because, you know, when we when we're in workplaces, we tend to, uh, I hope, want to have the best, you know, competent 
actors within our within our you know within our work, and we take action when people don't. So this is an institutional challenge that um, that the policing that policing ha- policing service has certainly on both sides of the border. We've dealt with that here in Vancouver with the Vancouver Police Department. Uh, there's a report that was uh, that was tabled uh, not too long ago, little little more than a year ago, that looked at the amount of disproportionate policing that Indigenous women received in Vancouver. Uh, that they got, they Indigenous women were received a very unique and problematic police response, and we see that at the organization I work for, where you know battered Indigenous women that are calling police or somebody is called police. Uh, they are not viewed as a victim when the police show up. and Instead, they're viewed as perhaps a perpetrator. Well, you might have heard the federal government announcement earlier today accelerating the delivery of money to municipalities and cities right across the country. A lot of mayors in those jurisdictions, though, say it will help, but much more is needed. The prime minister saying today the $2.2 billion in funding for the communities that's paid out of the gas tax fund will be delivered this month. So what exactly does that mean for struggling municipalities? Well, joining me to talk a little bit more about this is the president of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, Bill Carstens. Thank you so much for being with us. Jill, thank you very much for the opportunity to uh, be here with you today and speak to your audience. It's much appreciated. We've been hearing from a lot of municipalities about the need for federal funding or any funding from, from different levels of government. So what's your response to the announcement today from the Prime Minister? Yes, thank you very much uh, for the question, Jill. So as we now know, uh, you know, there is no new money. Uh, This announcement, uh, certainly in essence, what it's doing is it is providing us uh, uh, the grants in the form of uh, uh, the regular transfer we would get for gas tax funding, uh, which traditionally comes in two payments per year, brings it to us uh, in one payment. And instead of having to wait till October, uh, it's going to provide us that money uh, sooner, which hopefully is this month. So, uh, you know, in many ways, we we welcome that. I I think that the federal government and certainly the prime minister uh, is acknowledging that uh, something needs to be done. However, as I as I say, it is no new money. uh, And subsequently, uh, it is earmarked for capital spending uh, in the form of infrastructure. So it doesn't help us again, which is the dire need of our immediate uh, uh, revenue uh, problem with uh, operating funds. Uh, So, yeah. Oh, sorry. What would help with those more immediate needs then? Yeah. So what what we've called for, uh, Jill, back uh, now five weeks, four or five weeks ago, uh, we called on the federal government, A, to show leadership, uh, and and B, uh, the leadership uh, meaning that uh, certainly the provinces have a role here, uh, but they do have... uh, if you will, the uh, partnership and, and uh, communication with the provinces uh, to provide that leadership and, and be what we're calling for a uh, number of weeks ago was uh, uh, to cover the financial revenue losses that uh, municipalities are experiencing, which equate to in the ballpark of uh, your, your listeners, I hope, are sitting uh, between 10 and 15 
billion dollars has been lost uh, directly to municipalities uh, from revenue losses uh, from transit uh, from all of our reg- regular uh, fees and licenses in, in municipalities to certainly huge losses uh, on what we expect to collect from property taxes commercial and residential so uh, ever so quickly I will add that uh, uh, the importance of this announcement though uh, is not lost on us because even though it doesn't help with that uh, financial revenue uh, losses that we've uh, encountered, it does recognize very clearly that the Prime Minister recognizes that this is a uh, municipal uh, financial crisis and is, in fact, uh, as rightfully so, uh, recognized as being a national crisis and that it does require urgent uh, national leadership and meaningful, and this is where I want to really get to uh, the importance of this, uh, the importance of him stressing that this does require provincial uh, collaboration. So A, recognizing there's a problem uh, is encouraging, and B, saying very, very uh, uh, emphatically, and we were encouraged by his commitment uh, to come forward with additional federal support, uh, and we urge the provincial governments to do the same. So I don't have his transcript uh, in front of me, Jill, from the briefing at noon uh, Eastern time, but he did make comments like this is a, a start, and uh, then I, I don't want to be quoted on his exact words, but it was almost like, uh, uh, but there's much more work to be done. And what that work includes is, in fact, for all premiers in this country, all 10 premiers and the premiers from our, our territories uh, to step forward and say, yes, we will work with the federal government to find a solution in one form or another, be it uh, cost sharing, be it uh, some, some other arrangement to find a solution to help municipalities uh, out of the situation they're in. Uh, because I, I will be emphatic as well, uh, we have looked at uh, it every which way we possibly can, and there is is no true economic recovery uh, without a solution to this crisis. Uh, municipalities are, are most often the the engines that help drive the economy, and you can't have an economic recovery with weak or struggling municipalities, uh, regardless of the size of the the city or town or village. Uh, I know that you've talked as well about the choices that cities and communities now face because of this. And and like you said, it's a huge number, 10 to $15 billion in non-recoverable losses. What are some of those choices that you see? Yeah, absolutely. In, in reality, uh, great question, Jill. There are only two. Uh, you know, we can't run deficits uh, by legislation. The municipalities are not allowed to uh, run deficits. So the only two options are uh, tax increases to cover off the uh, the lost revenue, which we actually have done some research and, and some graphs and studies that uh, show that uh, there are municipalities in Canada uh, that would be increasing in Vancouver, I believe, was uh, in, in among this range. Uh, Again, I'm, don't quote me on that, but uh, uh, there were numbers like uh, 18 and 20 and 22, 24% plus, plus, plus increases to our, our uh, taxes, to residents' taxes at a time when really uh, they, they just can't uh, afford that, obviously. So the other one is uh, we do have another option. 
No doubt about it. We have the option to cut services uh, uh, that that uh, residents depend on us for. Uh, you know, I'm also Jill, uh, a counselor in Halifax, over being the president this year of uh, FCM, Federation of Canadian Municipalities. And uh, quite frankly, uh, we're looking at uh, cutting our, our budget. But uh, guess what? It includes uh, cuts like five million proposed uh, cut to police, five million proposed cut to fire, cutting out uh, senior snow clearing programs, cut, cutting out cutting. You know, uh, it what I've called it is it's just going around in a circle uh, trying to plug uh, certain programs with, with uh, get, uh, cuts, when in reality that's just a Band-Aid solution. These programs have been methodically thought out by municipal leaders. They're required, and uh, quite frankly, uh, that is not a solution either. Uh, the solution is, as we've been calling for for weeks, for the federal government uh, with the, the partners uh, uh, called provinces and territories to step forward and uh, uh, backstop our losses uh, with the, the financial aid that we so, so much in dire need require at this uh, critical time. All right. So, Bill, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time, but great to chat with you. I'm sure we will talk to you about this again. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Always my pleasure. And uh, thank you uh, for your interest in this critically important uh, uh, issue as we move to recovery from COVID. Thank you again. Well, the governor of Minnesota, Governor Tim Waltz, announced today an extension of the curfew in that state to ensure the public safety will remain and saying that the curfew will remain in place for at least two more nights and could be extended after what he was referring to a very tough week. Let's bring in a CBS reporter on the ground in Minnesota. Zach Shaw is with us right now. Zach, thank you so much for taking a few minutes. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me on. Well, where are you and what's happening? So currently I'm in Minneapolis and right now it's just, you know, the early, late, mid to late afternoon. Not a whole lot occurring where I'm at right now, but the major news of the day is the Floyd family's independent forensic analyst just released the independent autopsy report which they've found that Mr. Floyd's cause of death is mechanical asphyxiation, and they deemed it a homicide. Again, this comes one week to the day after Mr. Floyd was killed in South Minneapolis. So it remains to be seen how this is going to influence demonstrations tonight, especially as the curfew is going to get underway here in just a few hours. Well, and not not being a total pessimist, but you've got to think people are going to be angry about that because that's quite opposite to what we were told by officials earlier on. Well, no, absolutely. I think something to keep in mind that I've definitely experienced here in the Twin Cities is that the vast majority of protests are peaceful. The ones that are making the news, unfortunately, that we're seeing all over social media and across media in the United States are unfortunately the violent ones. And granted, in the days immediately following Mr. Floyd's death, there was some really incredible violence here in the Twin Cities. But the vast majority of protests during the daytime hours are relatively peaceful. And even as the governor has said, the agitators that you know law enforcement has really described haven't really been out in full force. I believe last night there was only one fire set in Minneapolis. 
So it remains to be seen just what the situation will be tonight. But this weekend, compared to what we saw last week, was relatively peaceful. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about uh, the video and the, the visuals of the truck barreling into a crowd of protesters. Uh, the, the safety commissioner there saying that they don't believe that was an intentional act. What kind of response or what are people saying about that? So I actually was on University Avenue and watched that truck come barreling towards the crowd. Um, it was a very jarring scene. Um, from my vantage point, I couldn't even tell if anyone had been hit or not, but it was absolutely disturbing to watch that happen. I mean, it, it really depends. I mean, the current explanation we're getting, like you just said, is that this was apparently an accident. Um, the reaction on the ground is is very mixed to that. Um, regardless of the intent, it was a horrifying scene, very disturbing for anyone to be there, and even for people to see live on television, absolutely disturbing. So I think it doesn't really matter the intent at this point. The fact that you know this city has gone through so much trauma already, and to have a possible event like this to happen, just absolutely unfathomable to think of. And you mentioned, too, that a lot of the pictures and make sense that we're seeing is of that truck barreling into that barricade. But we're seeing the worst of it, or that's certainly what's being shared. It seems like that's being shared uh, the most. Do you think that's taking away or what kind of a response is that getting from those who want to get out and want to continue peacefully protesting? I think something to definitely keep in mind is that what we're not seeing is what's happening during the daytime hours. The city of Minneapolis and St. Paul have really, they've come together over the last several days to really gather an incredible amount of donations for communities that have been really hard hit by the violence. The majority of these violent protests that have resulted in looting and fires have been targeting shopping centers across the south side of Minneapolis, leaving large communities now food insecure. There's been an absolutely unbelievable amount of donations that have been made. I mean, on Saturday, there was a middle school on the south side of the city that had north of like 10 tons of food delivered. Um, I believe it's over $2 million in donations have been made right now to rebuild the Lake Street corridor. So I think it's important to keep in mind when we're viewing a lot of these protests that unfortunately turn violent, that there's a lot of good happening too. And just before I let you go, uh, one more question, because the mayor has has come out very, very and, and very straightforwardly telling people he believes the people that are causing the violence are, are an organized system of people that they, they are not obviously or not the same people who are peacefully protesting. Uh, are you anticipating or is there anticipation of more clashes between uh, these two apparent groups or do we even know at this point? Um. I think it kind of remains to be seen what the total breakdown of people inciting violence is, whether they're from the Twin Cities or whether they're from elsewhere parts across the country. Um, I think it really does depend. I mean, there are def- there's definitely a tangible sense of rage in the Twin Cities right now in regarding Mr. Floyd's death. But it's not to say that there's not organized violence across the United States right now. We're seeing it in cities like Washington, Chicago, Los Angeles, Atlanta, So it's unfortunately something that will always come forward when these types of events happen, when there's mass demonstration. There will always be people there to purely incite violence. Um, Whether or not that's a defining part of what we're seeing in Minneapolis, I think is something we'll have to determine in the days and weeks ahead. But as far as I know now, especially over the last couple days, we're seeing what was a very violent situation turn more peaceful.
Last week when we were talking with Dr. Daniel Calla at St. Paul's Hospital, he mentioned the LifeGuard app and the fact that it is one more tool that can help people not overdose and lose their lives. And we were talking to him because of the increase in overdose deaths that we've seen both in April and in May of this year, a spike in the number of people who are dying and in most cases dying at home alone. Well, we wanted to learn a little bit more about the LifeGuard app. So joining me on the line is Jeff Hardy. He's the founder of Lifeguard Digital Health. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon. Uh, So how exactly does it work? Okay, well, the application is obviously on the Google and Apple Store. So obviously an easy download onto your cell phone. Uh, At the beginning, when you download it, the application asks you for kind of, we call call it some administrative Details, for instance, it asks you one time for your name, but that's by choice. You don't have to put that in. Secondly, it um, it asks for your phone number, and then it sends out a verification. Uh, It comes back to you with a code just to make sure the uh, the number is correct. Because, of course, that's uh, the data that the emergency services people use to call you back and make sure that, uh, you know, it's it's an actual legitimate uh, emergency call, and it's not a false call. And so, so oh, sorry, go ahead. So once that happens, um, it'll send you directly into the app. So that information is only asked one time. So when you go to use the application again, it sends you right into the home page, which has um, only a couple of questions that you need to, to ask that um, activates the, the alarm. So it asks you with the drop-down menu, it gives you a couple of choices of what kind of um, drug you're going to take. So once you... you you position that or you hit that, select that. It asks you to confirm or to start. And once you hit that, it comes up with your GPS location. It asks you to confirm that or before you confirm it, you can add in extra details. So if you can add in things like I'm in the bathroom. Uh, if you're in a mall, possibly you might say, you know, I'm behind Starbucks or something, whatever it is. It allows you to put in extra detail so that when emergency services does respond, they have a better chance of locating you faster. Okay, so you put all that information in, and then what happens? So if the alarm is, it's a one-minute alarm, and it starts and it goes in reverse, obviously, so it counts down for a minute, and that's the time that, uh, you know, you're going to use to to facilitate taking your, your drug. And if you don't overdose or if you don't pass, pass out or if, you don't, uh, if you're not in an emergency state, obviously, you turn the alarm off reset it but as it counts down once it gets to 10 seconds it starts its first stage of the alarm so it gradually gets louder so if you are somewhat in a conscious state hopefully you'll hear turn it off if you don't it hits it gets to zero and that alarm will keep going it doesn't turn off until somebody actually gets to you so in hopes that maybe somebody close by will hear it or when emergency services responds they'll hear it and have an easier way to find you but if the alarm does go off, it then sends an information through a text message, which converts from text to text to voice. That information lands at uh, emergency services desk or 911 as we know it. They gather that information. They then make the call back to the, to the phone. Hopefully somebody will answer, say I'm okay. If not, they dispatch uh, emergency services to that location. 
Right. So, so the number of steps then with, with kind of the last resort is that somebody needs paramedics to come in hopes that, yeah. that they haven't overdosed and they're able to, to turn the alarm off. Exactly. And of course, that's what we hope for. But as I've said many times, the application was designed to save your life first. And then hopefully, you know, it has different features where you can contact uh, treatment centers or you can uh, get through to a crisis line. So it doesn't just have the alarm built in. It has other features that uh, help with, you know, lots of different things. Uh, do you have any idea how many people are using this app? Right now, or uh, since we've since we've had it out, which is two weeks, uh, we're expecting a big spike today because we just um, launched it in uh, Vancouver Coastal. And uh, but so far, we've had fifteen hundred people go to the uh, Apple and or Google Store to to look at it. We've had three hundred people download it, and we've had uh, each download has averaged a use of three point two two times since they've had it. So almost a thousand times somebody's used it. And do you know how many times that that's resulted in paramedics being dispatched? Uh, you know what? Yesterday we had one, uh, which was a uh, somebody was responded to. The paramedics did come. They did take them to hospital and revive them. And uh, it was our first sort of uh, sort of celebration with using it over the last couple of weeks. So that was the first emergency response. We've had a few where the alarm's gone off, but people have been revived or haven't actually had to call emergency services. Somebody's been around to help them. Right. Okay. So it's dependent, though. Somebody has to make sure and they set this every time before they use. Yeah. So you, you go to your, and it's, it's kind of habitual, um, people that are using. So um, they get into a habit of, of, from our experience. So we've done some trials and we did, we did some beta tests. And the feedback is that it becomes part of the habit. So, and through that, some things, information came out. It, it brings awareness of how much somebody's using. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a tool that does a lot of things um, that we found through our betas and trials. Have you heard from anybody, or are there any concerns about privacy in that it sounds like it's all kept? It's not as though you're getting a name, or like you said, somebody doesn't have to put their name in there. Is there, is there concern that that information could be used or could somehow be released to, to people that, that somebody wouldn't want it to? Yeah, so that's always a concern. But the, the, as we get the message out and as people get the video and they learn a little bit more about the actual application itself, the only time any information leaves the phone is if you are in trouble in the emergency services. Most importantly, um, it's important to get the information out that this only goes to BC Ambulance or any ambulance um, in, in different geographical areas. It does not involve the RCMP uh, and it doesn't involve um, the fire department. So most people love emergency services people, so they're the only the ones that show up. So again, the information it only leaves your phone if you're in trouble. So most people are, well, at that point, I, I don't mind. Right. Do, do you get the sense, though, and, and you kind of touched on this, that it does also, uh, you know, have options for treatment or if somebody wants to reach out or, or, or call a crisis line? Uh, because it yeah. seems like if you're going to put that energy into doing this step and this step becomes part of using, then there might come a time when you're doing this and, and you think maybe, well, I'd rather actually get treatment. I'd rather actually not use this. What can I do instead? And does it have it has the, the avenue for people to do that? 
Well, through the, so two things that I want to answer that. I'm glad you asked the question because one of the stats that we're most proud of is that when we were doing our trials, 6% of the people that we were, we were um, trialing with on their own, that's really important, decided to go to recovery. So through the application, they became aware of how much they were using. Uh, and on their own, on their own choice, uh, they decided to get into treatment centers and recovery centers. So I, we're not privy to where, but we, are, um, we, we, we were pretty close with all the people in our trial. And um, that was the information and feedback that we got. So on the application, there's a, a bar at the bottom of the homepage. And it, it connects you directly to a crisis line. And through Crisis Line, if you want to, they'll set you up with treatment or, or for the information that you need to take the next step. All right. So very uh, interesting app, and I'm sure more and more people uh, will be checking yeah. it out. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for your time today to explain it a little bit more. Thank you very much for getting the word out. Really appreciate it.